0: Thank you, Tim. I appreciate that song set. Um, and I don't know if you were paying any attention to the background on that last hymn, but uh, I was because my family and I just got to spend the last week in Rocky Mountain National Park. I don't know whether that's where that picture was taken, but you might have noticed the golden aspens. Uh, they're really beautiful. They weren't turned in July. They don't turn till September. Um, but God's creation is indeed... Uh, beautiful, and uh, it's a privilege to be able to enjoy it. So I'm Don Blair, uh, one of the elders here at Northfield, and just by way of announcement before we um, get started, uh, some of you may be wondering, whatever happened to this three-part series on the body? So we started on July or June 28th with uh, Micah speaking about covenant, Doug followed that with the second part on July 5th, uh, on commitment, and then Rick was to have spoken last Sunday on contentment. Uh, That didn't happen because Todd was in town, and we wanted to give him an opportunity to bring us a message. And so then, Rick was going to talk this morning, but it just turned out between his schedule and my schedule, it worked out uh, best for the both of us to switch and So you're going to get to hear Rick next week. You can look forward to that on the third portion of the body series, Contentment. So I had the opportunity then to um, pick my own subject, and I felt like God was speaking to me or bringing to my mind this idea that we are to be holy for he is holy, so my text verses are from 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, Heavenly um, Father, we are thankful to be the children of a holy God. And would you just um, impress upon us this morning what you expect of us because we are in that relationship with you who are holy. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, a word about repetition. You know repetition can be a bad thing and perhaps the the best example is a parent giving a command to a child say to stop a certain behavior. And many times that command may get repeated several times before any consequences are administered. And that's not good. You know the consequences should be administered early on in that process. But for the most part repetition is a good thing. We use it for emphasis when we want to bring out something that we feel is important. How many of you can remember, it's been several months now, uh, Micah's message on Romans chapter eight? Yeah, why do you remember that? I'll bet you could repeat the Romans eight one with me, but I won't ask you to do that. But you know, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why do you remember that? Because he repeated it. Repeated it many times during the message. That's a good thing. It helps us to remember. And so we would do well when we're reading and studying God's word to look for repetition. Look for words or phrases that are repeated in, uh, in books, in chapters, and sometimes even in verses. It helps us to know what God considers important and what he wants us to learn. And so I want to deal this morning with two repeated phrases that we find in the body, in the Scripture. Number one, I am the Lord. And number two, be holy for I am holy. And so just a quick outline, we're going to look at uh, these phrases in the Old Testament and then we'll look at the New Testament what we find there, and then throughout there will be some application as to what does this all mean for us. And so the main idea, if you don't remember anything else this morning, is this, the behavior of Christians is different from those who are not Christ followers because they are in a relationship with a God who is holy. Holy. Let's begin by defining holy. As it's used in the New Testament, the Greek word is hagiosmos. And this signifies two things. It signifies, one, a separation to God. Or in other words, our position. And secondly, the conduct befitting those who are so separated. And that would have to do with our behavior or our walk, which is a word that's commonly used, particularly in the New Testament, to refer to our conduct or our behavior. So being holy signifies a position, namely that we're God's people. But it also signifies a conduct or a way of life which is appropriate to that position and which is different from those who are not God's people and those two things our position and our conduct need to occur in that order we have first our position our conduct follows from that too often we perhaps or many people get that turned around we think our conduct comes first And then we gain our position by our conduct. That's not the case. Our conduct is important, but not because that's what it takes to be saved, but because we're in a relationship with a holy God. He saved us. He made us His people. He redeemed us. And He wants us, therefore, to act like his people. To be holy. For he is holy. Let's take a look at the Old Testament. For a few minutes. The book of Exodus. Is mainly about the bringing of. God's chosen people Israel. Out of their slavery. In Egypt. Their redemption from that slavery. And also some of the law. Is given in the book of Exodus. As we move on. To Leviticus, God is giving them there the whole system of sacrifices. The duties of the priests, the duties of the Levites, and again, some more of the law. So in summary, God is telling them, here's the law, this is how I want you to obey, this is how I want you to act. This is what I expect of you because you are my redeemed people. And we see that in the New Testament in keeping with the character and the consistency of God. Many of Paul's letters, most of them in fact, he spends the first part talking about who they are in Christ, what their position is, what they have, what God has done for them. And then he spends the second part Telling them what that means, how that should work out in their lives, in their conduct, and in their walk. Let's look in Leviticus, in the 11th chapter, the 44th verse. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate, or set apart as sacred. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am. Am holy. In Adam Clark's commentary on that verse, he says this The grand scope and design of all, and he means the various ordinances or laws, was that Israel might be a holy people and that they might resemble him who is a holy God. God is holy, and this is the eternal reason why all his people. Should be holy. Be holy, for I am holy. Again, the behavior of Christians is different from those who are not Christ followers because they are in a relationship with a God who is holy. Let's look at those two little words, I am. They first occur in the Bible with the definition that we're dealing with this morning in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. And you probably will remember that's where God has been speaking to Moses through the burning bush. And he's told Moses, I want you to go bring my people out of their slavery in Egypt. And so Moses, after unsuccessfully trying to talk his way out of that, finally ends up by asking God, okay, who should I tell these people has sent me? And um, the answer is in this 14th verse of the third chapter of Exodus. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. According to scholars, this verb am or I am makes a strong statement about the being or the presence of a person or thing. The Revelation seems to emphasize that the God who made the covenant was the God who kept the covenant. So it's more than just a simple statement of identity, I am. It's also a declaration of divine control of all things. And this divine control of all things is in clear contrast to the so-called other gods of the nations around Israel, gods who did not exist except in the minds of men. In Acts 19:26 we read You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. And in Galatians 4.8, Paul himself writes, However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are no gods. You know, these other gods were usually a god of one thing. They would have a god of war, a god of peace, a god of love, a god of the sun, a god of the moon, a god of the stars, and so forth. In contrast, our god is the lord of hosts. And that's an interesting phrase. That's used 229 times in the Old Testament, the Lord of hosts. He's the God of everything, of all creation, all that exists, all people everywhere, whether they know it or not, and most of them don't. He exerts control over everything, not just over one thing. So as we look at our lives, Is this Lord of hosts, our only Lord? Or do we sometimes let some other gods creep in there? Things like pride, selfishness, lust, materialism, all our stuff. Self-indulgence, I deserve this. In Charles Spurgeon's classic devotional, Morning and Evening, he says this. Surely, believer, you are delivered from open lusts and sins. But have you also escaped from the more secret and delusive snares of Satan? Have you come forth from the lust of pride? Have you escaped from laziness? Have you made a clean escape from the desire to be secure in your health and your wealth? Are you seeking day by day to live above worldliness, the pride of life, and the ensnaring vice of greed? So what I would ask you, I would ask all of us, how are we doing And that? I know that I personally fall far short <clears throat> in a lot of these areas when compared to a holy God. And in talking about these things, I can't stress enough the need to be in a community of fellow believers. Todd emphasized this last week in his message on the three calls of God, one of which was the call to be in community. A community, whether it is the local church, all of us here, whether it's our small groups, whether it's just the interactions we have one-on-one with each other, that plays a huge role in helping to keep these other gods out of our lives and keeping us on the narrow road of holiness. Let's look now at this phrase, I am the Lord. That phrase, I am the Lord, occurs 162 times in the Bible. You notice the repetition. All in the Old Testament. We've already looked at Leviticus 11.44, and I want to review that and tack on verse 45. So verse 44 says, for I am the Lord, your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And verse 45, For I am the Lord, who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Notice the repetition there. In just two verses, these two phrases are each repeated twice. And I believe it's instructive to look for a minute and consider where that phrase occurs most frequently and for what reason. In the books, uh, the, the statement uh, the, or the phrase occurs many times after statements of the law when God has been giving them on the law. So in Leviticus and Numbers, <clears throat> God has been giving them the law and basically is just saying over and over, I want you to do things this way because I am the Lord. In the major prophets of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, again, that phrase is repeated over and over. And the context is that God is telling them through the prophets, this is what I will do. This is what I want you to do because I am the Lord. So the behavior of Christians is different from those who are not Christ followers because they're in relationship with a God who is holy. I am holy. I am the Lord. Let's look at those two words, I am, in the New Testament. They occur three times in the eighth chapter of John. In verse 24, Jesus says, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. In verse 28, so Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And in verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And most authorities would associate these three uses of those two words with the I am that we saw in Exodus 3.14. Three times in Revelation chapter 1, the words I am are used of Jesus. And or God. In verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Verse 17, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. Verse 18, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. What does the New Testament have to say about being holy? Ephesians 1, four, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. Ephesians 5.27 That he might present to himself the church in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she would be holy and blameless. And our text verse, 1 Peter 1, 14-16, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So as believers, we are positionally righteous. When God looks at us, Through the atoning blood of Christ, he sees us as righteous. And I don't know about you, but that's a pretty amazing thing for me to think about. But that's our position before him. And because of that position, we should be highly motivated To live up to what God desires for us to do. So what are some practical ways to work out that holiness in our lives? Well, so on the one hand, we could say, well, that's simple. That is, it's easy to know what to do. Because scripture is full of commands that tell us how God would expect us to live. The hard part is doing it, right? Some of you may be thinking I'm spending far too much time on this, but let me just remind you that none of this is my idea. No, this is God's idea. This is God's word. And it's what he wants us to do. As I mentioned earlier, even Paul, in most of his letters, spends the first part talking about our position in Christ what God has done for us and then the last part which is often half of the letter he spends talking about okay this is how you should walk this is how you should conduct yourselves how we should live in the light of our position just three points briefly um, just pay special attention to these number one <clears throat> Because we have this covenant relationship with a holy God, He expects us to strive to be holy. Number two, at the same time, let's remember that because of His great mercy, we remain in that covenant relationship in spite of our failures. And number three, but our failures do not mean that we cease striving. So, how do we separate ourselves in our conduct from those who are not God's people? Let me summarize four general ways that I see as I look at the scripture. Number one is walk in a manner worthy. In Ephesians 4.1, we read this. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. We see that same phrase, walk in a manner worthy. Here's the repetition again. In Colossians 1.10, 1 Thessalonians 2.12, and Philippians 1.27. Walk in a manner worthy. This is admittedly an imperfect example, but I had to have a license to practice medicine. That was granted to me by the state of Illinois, and I had to meet certain requirements to obtain that license and then also to keep it. But nevertheless, it was a privilege to have that license because it allowed me to legally practice my profession. But in order to keep it, I was expected to conduct myself in certain ways, or I could risk losing that license. In other words, I was to walk in a manner worthy of someone having that privilege. A number of years ago, our three girls attended for a few years, Faith Baptist Christian School in Pekin, One of the things I remember about that time was that whenever a group of students would leave, did I go off? There we go. For example, to um, go on a field trip or go to a ball game or to go to some other activity, right before they left, they were always told, now remember who you are, where you're from, and who you represent. I heard that so many times that (laughs) I remember it even today. And of course, the admonition was, as you're out there among other people, remember who you are individually as a Christian, where you're from, from this Christian school, and who you represent. You're representing the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we would do well in our daily lives as we interact with people in the world around us to remember who we are and who we represent. Those of us who are believers have been given eternal life, sanctification, redemption, the Holy Spirit. God wants us to walk in a manner worthy of who he is and who we are. And that covenant relationship that we have with him, a holy God. For details on how that works, read Paul's letters. One of my favorite preachers, Alistair Begg, often says, you have a Bible, you're smart people, read it and figure it out. So we can read it and get the details. And again, as we live together in a community of this local church, in our small groups and in our individual relationships. We can build each other up and help each other to walk worthy of our calling. Number 2, walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. We get that from Galatians 5 and I'm sure most of you Remember the lists that occur in that chapter of the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. We've all heard, I'm sure, many sermons on that over the years. And again, you can read them, but we should continually be striving to be led by the Spirit. And I'll say a little bit more about that briefly in a few minutes. The third way that we can practically put this into practice is to put off the old and put on the new. We get that from Colossians chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 4. And it's a picture of taking off an old and dirty garment and putting on a clean and a new one. Spiritually, as believers, our old nature has died with Christ in his death, and our new nature is alive in his resurrection. Practically, we now have the power through Christ to work on getting rid of some of those old habits and old ways and replacing them with new habits and new ways. And I say work, (coughs) excuse me, work because that's what it is. It is work. If anger is a problem, we need to learn to give up our rights and give them to God. Do we struggle with lust or bitterness? We need to learn how to take our thoughts captive. Whatever our unholy habits or our unholy ways of life, it takes time and effort to put them off and to put on good habits <clears throat> in their place but we have the power to do it. And again, our fellow believers can hold us accountable in this process as we share our struggles and our successes. And finally number 4, <clears throat> do what pleases him. I take this from John 1 John 3:22, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases Him. You know, this is a verse we commonly use in talking about prayer, and we like the first part of that verse, don't we? What we ask. But we can't leave out those last two parts which tell us why we will receive what we ask. Because we obey His commandments, and because we do, what pleases him? So how do we know what pleases him? Well, the commandments in Scripture are clear enough, and we can obey those, and that pleases the Lord. We know that faith is essential. In Hebrews 11:6 we're told that without faith, it is impossible to please him. But what about those things in the Bible about which the Bible is not completely clear? Perhaps things like how we dress, what we watch, what we listen to, how we act in certain situations. For example, when we're offended, how do we respond? How we deal with conflict. In many other areas where we don't have necessarily a specific commandment. Well, Paul gives us some principles to follow in Romans chapter 14 and in Colossians chapter 2. But a verse that's been especially helpful to me over the years and really um, should be, I think, for all of us is Matthew 633 but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you when life is good seek first his kingdom when life is hard seek first his kingdom when we don't know what to do seek first his kingdom when we're at the end of our rope, seek first his kingdom. For me personally, I don't know what my life is going to look like from now on. My desire is that I can continue to seek first his kingdom and let God take care of the rest of it. My life's been very different since last October when Lori passed away. And it's going to be different again sometime. We don't know when, but when Mark and Kathy and the boys go back to Indonesia, my life's going to change again. It'll be the first time that I'll have to be alone. And so I don't know what that's going to look like. But again, my desire is that I can be diligent in seeking first his kingdom and let him take care of the rest. And so I would encourage you, whatever your current situation, whatever your life circumstances, and I know some of you are going through very hard and difficult times, seek first his kingdom. How do we do that practically? We seek his kingdom by reading and studying his word. We seek his kingdom by spending time in prayer. We seek his kingdom by letting the Spirit lead us. I mentioned that I'd come back to this um, being led by the Spirit. And so I want to do that and, and kind of finish up with a short story. Laurie has a cousin um, who spent his career as a church planter in the U.S. And over the years, he moved around to various states And uh, he would move into a place and, and start a church. And he was very gifted at that. And the Lord blessed him in that. But I remember talking to him once, and he was telling me a story about he had just led a man to the Lord. And one of the first statements then that that man made to him was, so now I suppose you're going to tell me that I have to stop smoking. And Marty wisely replied, no, I'm not going to tell you that. I don't need to. You start reading your Bible, and you start praying, you start coming to church, associating with other believers, and then you decide what God wants you to do. Seek first his kingdom and let the Holy Spirit lead. So why are we to walk worthy? Why are we to walk according to the Spirit? To put off the old, put on the new, and to do those things that are pleasing to him? It's because we have a relationship with a God who is holy and he is the Lord of hosts, and he is our Lord. The behavior of Christians is different from those who are not Christ followers because they are in relationship with a God who is holy. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we are children of a holy God. And we thank you that your word clearly instructs us that you expect us to live holy lives because we are in relationship with you. I pray that as we go forward from here, you will strengthen us, help us, lift us up with your righteous right hand, Help us to strive to be holy as you are holy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.